to Next Best Theater Quarantine Edition. I'm Nicole Ackman, and I'm your host for today's episode, which is all about film to musical adaptations. Today, I'm joined by Dan Baer. Hello. Michael Schwartz. Hello, everyone. Casey Lee Clark. Hello. Lauren the Magna. What's up, everyone? And Cody Derricks. Hiya. So first of all, before we get into our actual topic, we have to address that we received some very exciting news in the theater world recently. While we don't have any idea when Broadway is actually going to be back up and running, what we do know is that the American Theater Wing and the Broadway League have revealed that they will be holding a digital Tony Awards this fall to honor the shows that opened in the eligibility window for the Tonys that should have happened this past June. Uh, Obviously, there aren't that many shows. They've started to release some uh, eligibility lists I've seen. Um, What do we think about this special fall Tony Awards that we're going to get? Thank the fucking Lord. Yeah, I need something. (laughs) I mean, it's exciting for us because it gives us something to make episodes about. (laughs) But no, like, I'm genuinely excited as, like, a lover of theater that, like, these shows have a chance to be honored because so many, like, they didn't have a chance to stake their claim on Broadway the way that they would have in a regular season. And if they had said, you know, like, well, we'll include these shows uh, in the shows eligible for the next Tonys, whenever that may be, so many of them will have been so long gone that I doubt that they would have gotten any recognition at all. Exactly, yeah. I think it's particularly good news for the plays, uh, which most of which do not have any plans, I think, to reopen uh, whenever Broadway does, many of which just announced that they are closed. Uh, And I think that a lot of those also, you know, you see in a normal Tony's year, any play that opens too early in the season tends to get forgotten about. And I think that we definitely would have seen that if they had just pushed out things to the next Tony Awards that you know yeah. was on the schedule. I'm also I got very excited yesterday when I realized that this puts a handful of musicals in a spot where they are likely to get recognition that they wouldn't have otherwise, namely Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. <laughs> Who would have thought? I could not be more thrilled. <laughs> things like that, <laughs> Jagged Little Pill, things that, you know, might have I don't I don't know what would have happened with them necessarily um, in a normal Tony season, but now I think I'm going to get more recognition. We also might end up seeing. I read an article today: the first um, non-gendered acting categories at the Tonys Ooh. ever. There is some speculation that because there are so few eligible people, really, that they might just do a you know best. Uh, leading performance, best supporting performance type thing. Um, so I'm very excited to, to find out more news about what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like an unpaved road ahead and who knows what could be on it. It's very exciting in a weird way. Unfortunately, the circumstances are not what we would hope would cause such an exciting moment. But it's, I mean, like you said, Nicole, it's really a lot of shows that are not going to usually get a chance for recognition. Just like the Oscars, like shows that open later in the season usually kind of get most of the attention. And those are all not eligible this year. So it'll be really new to see what might happen. Yeah, yeah all those like, shows were just starting to open when Broadway shut down. So everything like Company and uh, Flying Over Sunset never got a chance to debut. So we're looking at a bunch of plays that had closed or were about to close 
during the time of the shutdown and then four new musicals. So it's really going to be an interesting road ahead, like Cody said, you know, to see where everything falls. Yeah. And like with the um, Sondheim concert a couple months ago, we can still have performances. They're not going to be big, splashy numbers, but we'll get, you know, people singing and whatnot. And that's always nice. And we'll get to hear, you know, songs from these new shows that maybe we all might not have heard in a different way. So that might be nice. We'll have Aaron Tveit like in his kitchen again. It's, you know, (laughs) I think this is fine. This is good news from where I'm, (laughs) from where I'm concerned. I'm, I think it's, it's overall a really good thing. And I, I also am just very excited to actually get to experience, you know, something theater related this fall. Yeah. And you know what? If we're talking about the logistics of the show, I would love to see someone like Seth Rudetsky and James Wesley host because they've done such a terrific job with stars in the house since the pandemic started. You know, it would just tie in nicely with everything that's being done for the Broadway community to see two of them get a moment to shine at the Tonys. I have to imagine that they are at or near the top of any producer's wish list since they've been doing such a good job at that. That's my wish. And I also just need to see Danny Burstein walk away with the Tony Award because that man deserved it before COVID. But what he's been through, hell and back, you know, it's just it's time and he's a mensch. And I think everyone (laughs) wants to see that. Awesome. Well, Speaking of some of those shows that are eligible that are based on uh, films, today's topic is screen-to-stage musicals or musicals that are based on movies. We talk a lot about movies based on musicals, but I don't think that the opposite phenomenon gets discussed as much. And there's so many examples of uh musicals that are based on movies just as there's a lot of musicals that are based on books like Phantom of the Opera for example. Some popular musicals based on films include Heather's, Once, Waitress, Kinky Boots, The Band's Visit, and Legally Blonde. And of course there's some that were you know running whenever Broadway shut down like The Lion King, Beetlejuice, Mean Girls, Frozen, Aladdin, uh, Moulin Rouge, and I bl- the the not yet opened, but but already in previews, Mrs. Doubtfire. It's not exactly a new phenomenon either. I think a lot of times people talk about these uh, musicals based on films as though it's something that's cropped up in the past ten years. But you've got you know, Mari Yeston's Nine is based on Fellini's Eight and a Half, or um, Bergman's Smiles of a Summer Night was the inspiration for A Little Night Music. Sometimes a musical is very lucky and it becomes a well-known property that people are more familiar with it than the film that it's based on, like Kinky Boots. And sometimes these musicals have to try to stand up to the very well-known film that is their basis, like uh, Moulin Rouge or uh, Mean Girls. Um, And of course, you can't talk about this without talking about Disney theatrical, because they're one of the biggest presences on Broadway, one of the biggest moneymakers on Broadway, and with a few exceptions, all of their work are film-to-stage adaptations. And so, of course, they have shows like The Lion King, Aladdin, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Mary Poppins, but they're also currently working, supposedly, on adaptations of Hercules, The Jungle Book, The Princess Bride, Alice in Wonderland, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and Father of the Bride. Some of those I did not know until I was researching this art uh, for this podcast. And I was like, father of the bride, (laughs) because that is such a Disney classic. But I can see it. Like, I can totally see it. I can kind of see it. 
I can see, you know, Danny Burstyn winning his second, third Tony for that. <laughs> okay, and I need Dan Bayer to play the Martin Short role in that. <laughs> <laughs> it's only been my dream since I was a little boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, well, I wanted to kind of open the floor on this episode and give everyone the chance to talk about their favorite and their least favorite screen-to-stage musicals. Uh, we're all a family here. If anyone's favorite is someone else's least favorite, we're going to be fine. Um, and what you guys think... That's what you think. Well, we're going to be fine on air. Uh, <laughs> afterwards, what you what you do is out of my control. Um and we're, we also can talk a bit about what we think makes a film to stage adaptation succeed or fail, because I think that you can typically point to uh, some specific things that that are shared amongst good ones and amongst bad ones. So if you guys want to start just by sharing your favorite one that you want to talk about today, why don't we start with Michael Schwartz? Yeah, so one that I think works really well, you know, I don't want to say it's better than the movie, but it serves the movie incredibly well, is one of my early favorites, and it is a nostalgic favorite to this day. Uh, the big 2001 blockbuster, The Producers, I think, has that Mel Brooks score that he wrote with Glenn Kelly, I think his name was, uh, his collaborator on that. But what he did in turning his own Oscar-winning screenplay and film that he directed into a big Broadway smash, changing some elements around, but really making it fit the stage, expanding it beyond 90 minutes and, you know, adding more layers into that plot. I think it's stood the test of time for good reason, because it just, you know, continues to be as irreverent and hilarious nearly 20 years later. But by, you know, giving us Nathan Lane as Max Bialystok and Matthew Broderick as Leo Bloom, you create this amazing Broadway pairing for the ages and it's just zany comedy in musical comedy, you know, musical comedy, two of the greatest words put together to create, you know, this amazing sensation. The Producers is one of my favorite films, so it would be hard to top that as a property. But seeing what he and Susan Stroman and Thomas Mann did with uh, the Broadway musical, I love it and think it, you know, is the gold standard for an adaptation from film to stage. Yeah, I, I had a feeling that was going to be yours, Michael. Yeah, I didn't even bother putting <laughs> yeah. it anywhere in this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, I, I love that show as well. That show has a lot to answer for. And if it wasn't as good as it was, I would probably hate it. But like, it's such a delight. It says a lot how the helium began to deflate from the balloon after Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick left. But the two of them, it was like lightning in a bottle combined with yeah. that score and that book and that moment in time, sort of post 9-11, people were looking for a big pick-me-up. And, you know, to look at how you expand again this 90-minute film into two-and-a-half-hour Broadway extravaganza, it's not pitch-perfect every single moment, but it works as a whole, and I love it and have a very nostalgic spot for it. It's kind of mystifying to me how that works so well, but young Frankenstein doesn't. We'll be talking about that later. <laughs> good. Oh, man. All right. Well, let's let's keep talking about good ones. Um, Casey, do you want to share yours? Yeah, of course. Um, well, I wouldn't be a Baltimore girl if I didn't bring up Hairspray. <laughs> yes. Um, Yay. I am also a big fan of the original 
John Waters film. I have some special connections to that and him. But I think the musical takes that and makes it not just more accessible, but also a lot more fun. It's got great musical numbers, a great cast. It can be, it's done regionally a lot. It's, but it's original cast, I think is so great. Of course, Harvey Firestein, obviously. Um, it's just a big, fun musical with a lot of heart, with something to say that, you know, it's one of those where I always think I'm like, all right, I think I'm over it. And then I'll see a production of it or hear it. And like, I can't help but love it. Literally one of the catchiest scores ever written for a musical. Oh, yeah. Also, talk every, about every song is gold. Mark Shaman's got I really think. I really think that's such an improvement over the movie it's based on, too, which is fine, but nothing, like, spectacular, in my opinion. And the musical really expands it into something like, oh, this is really doing something here. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's one of those few musicals that does surpass the film. And, again, like the producers, it becomes its own thing, but sort of goes above and beyond in that way and saying, this is now the definitive hairspray that we think of when we think of that property. Yeah, and I think it evokes, I think, the idea of, like, the reason of musicals is when something's so exciting that you have to sing about it of like, there's when watching the original film, there's so many moments where you're just like, Oh, I just want them to break into a musical number. <laughs> like when Edna gets her makeover and she literally says, welcome to the sixties. Like, I'm just like, I just want the number. Like it, it completely evokes everything that a movie to stage musicals should be. Now, has anyone here, did they see the movie before the show because i know so many people have gone to the movie after seeing the show oh i saw it before okay so when you first saw hairspray on broadway or listened to the album you knew those moments from seeing the film yeah okay so someone like me and i'm sure you know many others here on this podcast did it the other way around so when casey just said uh edna says welcome to the 60s you expect them to burst into song and for me i still enjoyed the movie hairspray but it Felt like, okay, we're building up to something. Oh, no, we're not. We're not going there. Okay, on to the next scene. Yeah, I do think that's one that kind of, if you're familiar with the musical in some ways, it like alters the movie for you, which isn't a bad thing per se, but I think it, it does kind of change your perception of the, the movie. Mm-hmm. Awesome. It's funny how visually similar they are, though. Like, obviously there's some differences, but like, it's interesting that like, the visual style was pretty like similar. I mean, more over the top for the stage, but like I think of like their interior of their house and like just certain things about it and like the Corny Collins show set, like it's very similar, but that's not even a bad thing. I think that now because there's so many more uh, movie to stage musicals, we like want them to do something different. But with this, it's kind of like it can be similar in that visual style and still be perfectly fine. Absolutely. All right, Cody. Okay, so I didn't pick my very favorite um, adaptation musical because that is nine and there is already a circa two-hour podcast about that <laughs> you can go back and listen to. I did a damn good job hosting if I do say so myself. I picked um, a show that I think takes what the movie is going for and translate it to translates it to the different medium stage really admirably for a movie that's really grounded in the medium of film. And that's uh, Billy Elliot. I feel like we haven't really talked about this show ever on this podcast, um, to my knowledge. So I feel honored to bring it up first, I guess. <laughs> um, it just takes a lot of what the mu- the movie is going for in terms of like 
exploration of different identities and um, what it means to be, um, you know, a man in this time period in London and all that. And it makes it more in the perspective of the main character. And it kind of makes the show um, more fantastical in a way, but it is still one of the most like gritty musicals I've ever seen, if you can call it that for a number of a show that ends with a angry tap dance at the end of act one. Um, <laughs> It just really is a magnificent kind of uh, expansion of what the movie's going for. And curiously, I don't really think that's much to do with the score. Um, the score It's one of those rare musicals where everything about it is so great, but the score is just fine. Um, and usually that would be like just an absolute killer of a musical for me. But the book and especially the direction of this were just so strong that it really just kind of moves along in a way that I can be okay with the score being lackluster. I'm not selling this very well, but that's, uh, I think again, a testament to the, just like the ingenuity of the creation of the musical. I think that's also one of those films where like, if you just read the material, it's like, Oh, this should be on stage. Yep. (laughs) Oh, Cody. I, I couldn't not disagree more. Ooh, our first disagreement. (laughs) Let me second look at that triple negative. Okay. No, 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 I could not. It is. uh, I I have one big problem with Billy Elliot, and it's such a small thing, but it completely ruins the musical for me. And that's like one of my favorite things about Billy Elliot, the movie, is that Billy is not the greatest dancer, but you can see when he dances that this is, it becomes such an intrinsic part of who he is. And he expresses so much of, is able to express so much of his passion through it, that the fact that he's not a great dancer is almost entirely secondary. And that's one of the things to me that sells the, the climax of the movie, which is the audition in front of the, you know, the hoity-toity Royal Ballet people. And when the woman asks him what he feels when he dances, that that to me is the key moment of the movie and it really sells it. But in the musical, he's a fucking prodigy. And that to me makes everything about his story so much less special and less interesting because it's almost preordained that he's going to get into this program because you, you see him dance. How could he not, you know? I mean, I get that. I'm always, I'm always picketing for mediocre dancing on Broadway. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say like bad dancing would not cut it on stage. (laughs) Well, I mean, that was my whole problem with Mamma Mia was that the choreography was terrible on Broadway. So, but yeah, like I, it, yeah, I'm sorry. I have, I have a lot of love for Billy Elliot, the musical, um, for helping launch the career of, my very own son, uh, Tom, Holland. Son, Tom Holland. <laughs> Did you How think you could bring up Billy Elliot and me not <laughs> talk about Tom Holland? <laughs> well, there you go. I rest my case. There you go. I mean, I, I am grateful to it just for that. So, all right, Lauren, what is a film to musical adaptation that you think was done well? I think one, I'm going to go for like a fairly-ish recent one. And it's one that I saw the film first as per usual. And I didn't normally think, oh, this should be a musical. And when I heard about it, I was thinking it might be good. It might be horrible. And that's Finding Neverland. 
Some people love it. Some people hate it. It's one of those in-betweeners. And I think it's amazing because once you do see the musical, you really know and you really understand that this story needed music to be told full potential. Because, you know, and if families can take their kids to see it for, you know, okay, we're going to see, you know, how the person who wrote Peter Pan became, like, came up with Peter Pan. But then you leave the theater and it's a whole other story. And, you know, I'm a sucker for Diane Palace. I will watch anything that woman touches. And I think she really did elevate the source material. And I, again, I love the movie's good. It's an Oscar-winning film. K1 sits my girl, so I'll watch anything that woman is in. But again, I do think that this story really needed music to really latch onto its audience. And it's not just about how the story came to be, but it's also about love. It's about loss. It's about imagination. And it's about how they all connect together. And it is, when you think about it, very theatrical because we are moving from reality to imagination. And that is something that works really well on a stage within a musical setting. And I think it works really well. And it has a really great act to exiting for one of the characters. And I remember being speechless when that <laughs> moment happened. And you really, I think this story is really elevated on the stage and with music. And it's one of those, you know, rare things where I'm like, wow, they really did it. And they really did something special. And yeah, it's one of those hit or misses, but I think it really hit it on the head for me. Hey, everyone. Sorry to interrupt, but this is a preview of episode 33 of the Next Best Theater podcast here on the Next Best Picture podcast. In order to get the full podcast episode from the MBT team, you will have to head on over to our Patreon for Next Best Picture. Subscribe for $1 minimum a month, and you will get the rest of this hour and a half long episode, along with other exclusive podcast content from us as well. You have been listening to the Next Best Theater podcast, part of the Next Best Picture podcast, which can be subscribed to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Player FM, Acast, and CastBox. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time.